Hi, this is Zoe, and this is the Zoe Rath Leadership Podcast. If you're a first-time listener, hoo-ha, welcome. And if you're a return listener, hey, you rock. I am so grateful to share the space between your ears yet again today. So we are talking about in the series on points of view, particularly around people stuff, which is my personal obsession and focus in my work. And when it comes to people stuff, there's so much that's hard about it. This particular interview, we go into the trenches, leadership in the trenches, the practice of leadership. And when it comes to the practice of leadership, there's some really big stuff we can talk about. Growth, transformation, and change. And when it comes to business, this can make or break a company. If you do it badly, it's all over Red Rover. How we lead through these times is crucial. We either get buy-in or we get shut down. The leaders I work with all want to know these things. How can I influence more? How can I get more buy-in? How can I get my teams to support and get excited about the vision? So today, we're going to hear from a leader who has led big companies through growth, through transformation, and through enormous change. He's not one to sing his own praises, and he lays all of his success at the feet of his teams. And today, we'll find out exactly how he did that. His name is Craig Dower, and listen to his CV. It's amazing. He was the president of the ASPAC, or Asia-Pacific area, for Avanade, based out of Singapore. He's the CEO of Salmat, a very established company here in Australia. He was the CEO and managing director of Zenith IP, and he is now the CEO-elect of Quantum IP, a leading IP and law firm globally. So huge, huge amounts of experience here, and I'm so delighted to bring his experience to the table so we can mine his experience and get all his wisdom and insights. Let's do it. So great to be here with you, Craig. I've been excited to line this interview up for ages when I saw your profile and saw all the amazing things that you've been doing. Uh, and you know, going from CEO of all these multinational companies all throughout the world, and one of the most interesting aspects of all that is how you managed to stay member of the rock band, The <laughs> Replacement. So what, how, when, when did that all start? Uh, it started a long time ago. I've been in and out of bands uh, most of my life. Um, but uh, I, I was in a band in Sydney before I moved to Singapore in 2008 or so. Um, and when I got back home in 2014, one of the guys that I was playing with then asked me if I'd be happy to rejoin, and I did. And uh, as you said, our band is called The Replacements. We, uh, we're all corporate people. None of us are professional musos. This is what we would do if we could do it all the time and not need to put food on the table. Um, we play uh, largely Aussie rock covers from the 70s, 80s and 90s. We've got a sprinkling of songs from this century um, and we, we play here on the northern beaches of Sydney. In fact, we're playing this weekend at a 50th birthday in the Hunter Valley. So I think 50th birthdays are about our sweet spot. Well, that sounds like an amazing time to blow off steam as part of, of, of an executive. And you've had some enormous roles. And one of the first ones you had that you've listed in your bio was out in Singapore with Avenade is did I pronounce that correctly? It's Avenard. Avenard. Oh, Avenard. Sounds the French pronunciation. Avenard. Very perfect. Very good. And in that, you led a business that tripled its business threshold, um, which I think is quite amazing. How did you go about doing that? It took a few years, so it didn't happen all. <laughs> I was with Avenard for about sort of seven years all up, but that piece across Asia-Pac was about a four to five year journey. But maybe a bit of context first, uh, when I first joined Avenard in 2007, um, my initial interview, or final interview, sorry, was with the founding CEO um, of Avenard, Mitch Hill, who is sadly no longer with us. 
Um, and when I asked Mitch to tell me about the Avenard story, he talked about how he and the founding team, when starting Avenard, focused really on what sort of company they wanted to build. They had parents, there's a joint venture between Accenture and Microsoft, so with parents like that, access to capital and access to talent wasn't really their biggest challenge. And so the question they asked themselves was, what kind of company would you like to build? And rather than starting with a business plan around numbers, they actually started with culture and uh, you know what kind of company would we like to build? And they had an opportunity to pick best elements of culture out of their parent companies of Accenture and Microsoft. And that was really music to my ears because I'd just finished a three-year assignment in a somewhat less than ideal culture. Um, and then Mitch also acknowledged that whilst they'd made progress, they hadn't always got it right. The company was founded in 2000, so this is about 2007 when I was joining. And, and in Asia-Pac, which is the region I was joining, some of the business was underperforming um, on a number of fronts. And so I joined with a brief to get the business performance back on track, but also, and perhaps more importantly, to try and steer the culture um, in the right direction. So when I got started and got to know the business, it became clear that in Asia-Pac, we had earned a reputation for over-promising and under-delivering both to customers and to employees. We'd oversold a number of projects and didn't have the delivery capability to meet client needs. So we had overruns and cost blowouts. We had really high employee attrition in a number of countries due to burnout in some cases and I guess the pain of consistently falling short of plan. Um, as well. And the business was losing money in a number of countries as well. So morale was pretty low. And the, the irony of that was that we were part of this really exciting and fast growing global company. And yet we in Asia Pac were failing. And in large part, that was because of injuries that we were inflicting, upon, inflicting upon ourselves. And so... What, what do you mean injuries you were inflicting upon yourself? Oh, we were signing deals that we couldn't deliver. Um, we didn't really have the delivery capability around it. And we weren't really living our values every day. Um, Avenard had a, as I said, you know, core set of values um, around sort of treating each other with respect, around delivery excellence, around believing that everyone counts, around, um, as I said, integrity and respect. And that wasn't always turning up every day um, in our workforce. And so, um, so I built a new leadership team. It was a mix of internal folks and some from outside. Um, and we put in place what really was a back-to-basics approach trying to replicate what Avenard had done successfully elsewhere in the world. So get the people right, get the culture right, get the strategic focus right and get help where needed. And so we had the opportunity to leverage Avenard's global capabilities. And so we brought a few very specifically target expats into the region. Um, we asked people to come and do a meaningful role and to help us build local capability. We invested in our people. We trained them a lot. We invested in their career development. You know, we had some very targeted assignments that we had with people to help build their skills. Perhaps most importantly, we focused on selling what we could deliver. So we narrowed our focus to a few very specific things that we knew we could do well in each country and we executed against that. We, we kind of stopped responding to RFPs, really focused our attention on going deeper with existing clients. And so, you know, over time, step by step, we built credibility both internally and also with our clients, as well as with our parent companies. And um, as a result of that, we built a much more collaborative approach across the region so we could all learn from and help each other. I think back to your question, one of the most important things we did was to focus on values and behaviours, as well as outcomes in setting goals and driving reward systems. So we were really clear about what sort of behaviour was expected. 
and where people fell short, we either coached them on where they needed to improve and they would improve, or if not, then we would ask them to leave. And we were particularly focused on this at the more senior levels where we expected people to be role models. We didn't expect perfection, but we did hold ourselves accountable for our behaviours as well as for our results. And that really started with the leadership team. How did I, I'm curious about that because that's something that a lot of leadership teams struggle with, is that accountability to behaviour as well as results. How does that look like in real terms, like in practice? Well, I think we... Firstly, I think having a codified set of values and behaviours that really define the culture that you're trying to build is, is essential. And so fortunately for us in the Asia-Pac region and me in that role, Adam had already done that and was implementing that globally. We just weren't paying sufficient attention to it in this part of the world. And so the, the rule book could sort of be written, if you like. Um, and if you, if you went into Avenard offices elsewhere in the world, you could feel it. You could feel the buzz around the place um, and the way that people collaborated. And so... Tony Robbins has this great phrase that success leaves clues, right? So we, we weren't reinventing the wheel here. We were just taking on board a playbook that had been successfully rolled out elsewhere in the world. Um, we did bring in some uh, people and culture experience um, from elsewhere within Avenard to help us with that as well. And, and they were great at help, helping us do some, you know, really simple things like within leadership meetings, either starting or closing or both uh, meetings with a, a conversation about how are we doing around values. Um, us as a team, and then outside of um, those particular offices with our respective teams, um, was that working? We, we put in place reward systems that focused on values and behaviours as much as it focused on outcomes. And so people um, started to see over time that we were taking this seriously. And I think also the fact that we removed a few people from the business over time that clearly didn't get it and were probably seen by some of their peers as not getting it. Um, so taking that seriously uh, made a difference. And so I don't think there's any silver bullet to that. I think it, it is about having it codified and then consistently making sure that you've got it embedded in operational processes as much as you can. And that you take it seriously, that you walk the talk. And if you make mistakes, which you do, I do all the time, you, you fess up to it and you acknowledge it and you apologise and you, you move on and you don't make the same mistake again. Mm. I'm curious also about the rewards piece because that's that's controversial in some ways and it's a lot of the research says, you know, be careful of what you reward and I like the fact that you reward values and behaviour as well as outcomes. Yes. What, what, are the, what was the nature of the rewards? Was it financial? Was there some other type of reward? Part of it was just recognition. In, in each country we had a a reward program that was kind of mirrored around the place and then rolled up to the Asia-Pacific um, quarterly awards. I think we did them. Is it too much at the area level to do them every month? But every country had their own program in place. And they had a reward around each particular value. So there were five core values and, uh, and, and many of the rewards would sort of reflect things around that. Um, and so where there were, uh, you know, outstanding things around teamwork, then there would be a sponsored team event of some sort. Um, there were often minor sort of gifts around uh, movie tickets or, or dinners or, or, you know, there were sort of trinkets of some sort, um, if you like, but it wasn't really around what is the, what's the value, the monetary value of the award. It was just, just the, the pure acknowledgement that these things were important. And in a team of a thousand or so people across a really diverse region, uh, just getting your name up in lights um, from time to time in and of itself is enough. I think people enjoy and really value being appreciated and, and having that get called out um, in a very public way can be really quite powerful. 
I agree. And I think that's a really sensational thing to do. And I love that the fact that you did that and saw the results of that. Uh, I'm interested in your experience walking into the place for the first time and seeing this litany of challenges. And this seems like they're quite comprehensive. Did you know intuitively that you needed to go to culture first? Or how did you figure out what piece to start with? Um, I think I did intuitively go to that. I had a bit of a sense, having spoken with Mitch, as I said at the outset, that, you know, he, he and the leadership group were very focused on culture and were very quick to acknowledge that they hadn't got it right everywhere. And his sense of things, you know, whilst he hadn't spent an enormous amount of time on the ground in the region, was that we, we weren't quite where we needed to be there. So he'd given me a lens to look through as a starting point, if you like. And then it was, you know, pretty easy to discover that that lens that he provided me was quite, you know, quite valid. Um, you know, you saw some behaviours. I saw some behaviours early on just getting out and talking to people in the business um, around people not always being treated with respect. And, you know, so that, that, that was intuitively a place to start. But that lens had been handed to me right at the outset as well. Has it been something that you've taken into your next roles or is it specific to that organisation? No, I, look, I think it's, uh, it's become um, a little bit of a playbook for me in a sense. I had come out of a, a culture that was quite challenging working inside a major Australian retailer. And that was quite a fragmented culture. You know, it wasn't always positive and constructive. And so having spent a little bit of time understanding what a, what a not so great culture was and then sort of coming into an organisation and seeing, uh, you know, I think I can say Avanade is the best culture of any organisation I've ever worked in. But they made it a fundamental part of their purpose and what they're all about at the outset. Um, it's become really clear to me as a leader that culture is everything, really, that if you, if you don't have it right, no amount of getting your strategy right or your team right can overcome a poor or fragmented culture. And so most companies have probably got some work to do there. And, and my experience in the last couple of roles that I've had has been not that we had poor cultures, but we certainly had some fragmentation and a need to be perhaps a little more specific and clear around codifying things as well. And, uh, and so, you know, all companies have cultures of some sort and all companies have purpose statements and mission statements and vision statements and all those wonderful management tools. But the question at the end of the day is, do they get lived? And the way to, to test that is with your people. One of the things that I have learned from doing this a few times now is that if you do get it right, things become so much easier because your people will own it. They will take those values and behaviours and embed them in everything that they do you know, it's a great phrase, I, I can't remember who it was that said, uh, culture is what happens when management isn't paying attention. And so if you get your employees to own this stuff, then they make your job as a CEO or a senior leader in the organisation just so much easier. So um, I had a conversation earlier with another business owner, and I'd like to see, hear your take on this. Uh, he has the perspective, he's very task oriented and process oriented. And he wants the culture of the place to be about following process. And he's frustrated that not everybody buys into that concept. What should he do? What is he missing potentially? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe in his particular context, process is important. I, I know that uh, having spent some time earlier in my career working in sort of startups or smaller, much more entrepreneurial companies, sometimes process is seen as the enemy um, of getting things done. But no business can scale without paying attention to process somewhere. Um, if, if you go back to Avenard, one of its core values was around delivery excellence. And we clearly were not doing that when I joined. 
And part of the reason for that is we just weren't following the global playbook. There is a process for how you deliver large-scale IT projects. And companies like Accenture and Microsoft, our two parent companies, had invested literally thousands and thousands of man years in developing their particular playbooks around that. And so we had access to that. And so a big part of getting our business back on track was, in fact, around pay attention to the process. And if you think you've got something to contribute to that by ways of, you know, ideas about a better process, well, then run that through the formal process of getting it acknowledged and, and it will get embedded. You know, all good ideas end up in these continually improving uh, knowledge bases of great big companies like Accenture and Microsoft. So it may well be for, for him that uh, the process is an important part of their culture. It's hard for me to contemplate an environment where everything was about process. But, yeah, I, I can certainly see where it can be important and it was for us. And it sounded like there was, I mean, it's one pillar of the whole cultural norms uh, at Avanade that made it such a successful company. It's not just about that. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to ponder this a little bit more on his behalf. <laughs> uh, thank you for answering that one. So you left Singapore and you then moved to Salmat. And this is Australia's leading multi-channel marketing and customer engagement company. So that sounds like a fascinating company. It has a team, and you led a team of more than 4,000 people. That's huge across Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, and Sri Lanka. And there you led a huge transformation program. So that's a slightly different kettle of fish than getting an organization back on track and scaling threefold results. A transformation program, what was that like? What was the transformation about? Well, Summit was a 35-year-old sort of iconic Australian company. Uh, it had been around, as I said, 35 years, and it acquired and launched dozens of businesses during that time. Um, it was a very entrepreneurial company in many respects. And whilst it was a listed company, it had grown up really like a large family business with a, you know, that sort of can-do attitude to just getting stuff done. But probably not a great proponent of process um, in some respects <laughs> and hadn't always integrated acquisitions or new businesses as well as they might have with the benefit of hindsight. And so you look at that sort of 35 years later, and there's, uh, you know, there's a bit to sort of untangle. I remember the chairman at the time described the challenges, untangling 35 years of spaghetti. Um, but again, wow. when I first, yes, it's a, it's a wonderful phrase. It's kind of stuck with me forever. And so, you know, we sort of had to get our hands in and untangle that spaghetti. Um, some of it was more like barbed wire than spaghetti, but nonetheless, the analogy uh, was quite powerful. And again, when I first joined, I think the thing that struck me was, was culture. Um, there was this very positive sort of family business kind of style about the place, but it was, there were like microcosms all around the place with their own cultures and, uh, and ways of doing things. And back to what I was saying before, you know, Avanade had these, very, these five very clear values and a bunch of behaviours supporting each of them. Within Salmat, this was documented in hundreds, hundreds of different places, sort of differently everywhere. It was also a bit blokey. Um, the executive leadership team was pretty much all male. Um, they're all good people and many of them had grown up in the business, but they weren't really tapping into the broader diversity of the business. I think across that sort of more than 4,000 or so people, probably more than half were female, um, but that, that really wasn't represented at the executive level, so we clearly had some work to do there. And then with all of the acquisitions and new business launches and so on, the company had become very siloed. So information was hard to access, especially data about business performance, it was really hard to tell where we were making money or otherwise. There were multiple financial systems and billing systems, there no line of sight around costs. 
And we were bleeding money on this large-scale IT project that had gone seriously wrong that was years late and massively over budget. So uh, falling short of customer expectations as well. So, um, And then if you sort of look at the way the business had grown, pretty much every business unit, and there were dozens of them, um, all had their own support teams, HR, finance, IT. So there are very few synergies being harvested across the group. And the, the ultimate irony was that, you know, everybody thought that their business was doing great. And yet in the first year that I was there, we posted a $100 million loss. So, Oh, my goodness. Uh, so, it was, you know, it was a fairly challenging start. And for the people, there was great work taking place across the whole company, you know, really passionate people who really cared about their customers doing really hard work and yet it wasn't showing up in results. So clearly something needed to change. I think the board and I realised that we didn't need incremental change, that we needed transformational change, and we, we wanted to move fast. So, you know, again, the first thing to do was to get the people right. So we recruited some folks from outside and also promoted from within. Um, in fact, I interviewed for our new CFO in my first week on the job, um, and she's now the CEO of Summit and has been for um, the last couple of years. And then the transformation strategy, again, we wanted to keep that as simple as we could. And we came up with this notion around three themes of focus, simplify and grow. And focus was around putting our attention where we could be the market leader and then get out of everything else. Um, simplifying was about massively simplifying the business. So move all technology platforms to the cloud, no more customization, every business on common platforms, put in place a shared services arrangement, get synergies wherever we could across the business, you know, basically destroy the silos and, and rebuild. And then grow was about investing the, the fruits from focus and simplify back and growing the business, so deepening our sales and marketing capability um, and so on. Um, and, you know, I think to your question of, the, of handling the people stuff, the, uh, the biggest issue we saw was how to handle the amount of change that we needed to navigate and the speed at which we needed to move. Yeah, that's a huge laundry list of stuff that you needed to get moving it, on. It is. And, and you know, we, it took us a while to sort of work out whether to prioritise about doing some small things first or, or doing some big things. But one of the first things that we did was to build an organisational change team. Um, and I think the probably the most important investment that we made in this whole transformation was about that. We, we were lucky to to hire somebody who had come out of um, a major train change program within one of Australia's large banks um, and that had sort of been a four to five year sort of heart-lung transplant, if you like, of their core banking platform, which touches every part of the bank. And that worked out really well for them. And so we had access to her expertise. She built a small team. There's sort of two or three people that focused largely on communication, but communication and context around change. And we did, a, we did an audit of where we thought we were at present, sort of, you know, going around talking to all of our people, um, doing polls and surveys and so on, using online tools around that. And no surprise, we were pretty low on the maturity curve when it came to change readiness. And so we, we had to invest in really effective communication and context, context, context um, around this. What do you mean by that? Can you just explain that a little bit? I understand communication. That's self-evident. But what do you mean by context, context, context as part of the major change agenda? When you're trying to drive organisational change, one of the things that happens very early on, people get scared by words like transformation and change. Um, mm. And their very first reaction is, well, what does this mean for me? Mm -hmm. And so providing context to people about why we are doing this, you know, what, what is the reason for this and how is it going to impact you are there going to be job redundancies? If so, when will we know about that? And so 
there's a sort of much published change curve. It's like a big S curve um, that talks about the process that people go through when they're dealing um, with change. And it's almost like a sort of a mourning process, if you like, that's M-O-U-N-I-N-G. Uh, and, uh, and people go through that at different paces, depending on how resilient they are. And so uh, Trish Kendall, who was our um, head of organisational change, was very good at helping contextualise that and making sure that we were walking in the shoes of the people that we were talking to within the business when we were talking about why we were doing this. And for me as the CEO, you know, I, I sponsored the transformation program. I was hands-on involved in lots of the technology work that we do, not in a, in a coding kind of sense, but in a, in a sort of storytelling um, sponsorship um, kind of sense. And Trish would remind me constantly, you know, how many times you have to just keep repeating the message about why, 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 why. Why are we doing this? What does it mean for people? Walk in their shoes, understand what it means to them. When you put up an org chart, the very first thing they're going to do is look at where they are and where they fit and so on. And so it was really around walking in the shoes of our people and just trying to provide context around that all the time. And that's hard if you have 4,000 people. It is. And uh, one of the things that we did do very early on is we, we moved all of our hugely disparate mail and messaging and telephone all of our communication systems, we moved to Google um, and we were able to do Google Hangouts everywhere across the business. You know, that simple piece of technology, um, which was revolutionary for us at the time, going back six years, fundamentally changed the way that we worked because we were no longer sitting in silos, emailing to each other across disparate systems that had different mail servers with different email addresses. Not everybody was on the same email address at the time to put in place a common infrastructure that everybody could use and just take as a standard way of doing things every day and cut our travel bill enormously. So there were some cost benefits around it as well. But what it really did was it allowed people who had previously either not communicated with each other or had done so via email to be talking to each other in real time. And everywhere I went within the business, and I would try to get to every one of our 20 or so locations um, at least once or twice a year, Everywhere I went, you could see people running Google Hangouts. It didn't matter whether it was in our digital team in North Sydney or our catalogue distribution businesses in Dandenong or out in the western suburbs of Sydney. Google Hangouts was being used everywhere. It just became the sort of ubiquitous, ubiquitous way of communicating within the business. So that, that made a big difference. And then we started running all of our monthly and quarterly updates using uh, Google Hangouts and having people able to, to dial in their questions and uh, get real-time responses to things, it just improve the agility of the business enormously. And did you have an intranet of sorts or, or did you just use the Google? Um... No, we had an intranet. We had multiple intranets to start with. We consolidated all that down to one. You know, we, we just took an approach which was to, the standard approach was to massively simplify unless there was a very cogent argument for being different. And as it turned out, there really was. Uh, then everybody adopted the same tools. We stopped customising for the sake of it. We, we trusted the cloud platforms that we were moving to. Google was one, Workday was another, Salesforce was another, um, interactive intelligence in our context. And it was those sort of four core platforms um, really changed the way in which we work. We worked and, uh, and bringing them all together just made the business so much more agile and uh, allowed us to, to, to innovate after that as well. So... That's great. I love it. So I love the whole you know, focus, simplify and grow as a way of like, let's clean up the spaghetti mess. <laughs> it 
then walking in people's shoes is a way to remember that people need to be taken on the journey, not have it thrust at them. So a lot of these things that you're talking about, whether it's the rapid growth from your time in Singapore or whether it's this transformational uh, process at Selmat, it's all people stuff. So for you as a leader, what do you love about the people stuff and what do you find hard? Um, maybe the hard part first. Uh, look, I think, I think the hardest part really is building high-performance teams is really difficult. It's messy. Um, you, you very rarely end up with the team that you started with. And so it often requires hard decisions around people. In almost all cases, they are good people who have uh, who are highly capable, they're well-intentioned, but they just don't quite fit in with what it is that you're trying to do. And, it, you know, it, it's, it's doing that is, is never easy. It's not those difficult conversations are never something that you enjoy. I think having hard conversations is also challenging. It's often easier to sort of settle for false harmony rather than it is to wade into conflict. But you can't build trust without dealing with those hard issues and be willing to be vulnerable in doing so as well. You know, I love the work that Brene Brown uh, does around vulnerability. But I, I think leaders uh, have to acknowledge when they make mistakes um, and be willing to ask for help. So I think, it, you know, building high-performance teams, having hard conversations, those things, I don't think they get any easier um, with age or with frequency. Um, they're always difficult um, to do, but, you, you know, I think what I've learned, having seen them done poorly, early in my career and now having done it a few times myself is just, you know, be open, be transparent, be grateful and, uh, you know, treat people with respect. You know, if, they, if they're not going to be part of your team, you want to make sure that you help them find um, another role elsewhere. Um, so I think that's the, that's the hardest part. Can I just check one thing? You know, like when you're building high-performing teams and you, you say you don't often finish with the people that you started with and some people are just well-intentioned but don't fit... What do you mean they, they don't fit? They're, they're not living up to the results that you're after. They're not following the cultural principles. What do you mean by they're, they're not fitting? Well, I think if you could sort of imagine a, a two-by-two a box where you've got performance or it's the results on one dimension and behaviours on the other, if you've got people that are delivering results and they get the values and they you know, behave, then you know, they're sort of in the top right-hand corner, they're role models. If you've got people that aren't living the values and they aren't delivering the results, then why are they still here? You've got people that are delivering results but incredibly difficult to work with, don't live the values, don't treat people with respect. They're the ones that often get a bit of a leave pass because they're delivering the numbers. You know, it's, it's easy to sort of go soft on them, but usually they're the ones who are the most sort of damaging to your culture um, over time, as opposed to the other little quadrant, which is those that might not be delivering results but really get the values and live the values. You know, they, they might be in the wrong role and perhaps some repurposing or restructuring, uh, you know, finding another role for them might make sense. So it's, it's, you know, it's really around making sure that you've got the dimensions of both results and outcomes and values and behaviours um, synchronised. And you, you know when you've got someone on the team that, uh, that sort of doesn't get their behaviours, sometimes they're, they're very obvious and, and much easier to deal with. Sometimes they're more insidious and more difficult to deal with. You know, they talk about things in the background. They have meetings after the meeting finishes. They, they kind of say to your face that they're on board, but then they're sort of actively undermining what the leadership group has agreed elsewhere. And so, you know, I think as a, as a leader, you need to be able to deal with people that are in all four elements of that quadrant 
and, and take action accordingly. Mm, yeah, I think uh, you're does that right. Make sense? It totally makes yeah. sense. And um, I remember reading a discussion about this on LinkedIn around that exact quadrant. You know, it's the it's the high performers who are not living the values that are absolutely insidious and hard initially to get rid of. And the longer you hang on to them, the more corrosive they are. Um, it's never worth a star performer who's who's toxic. And it's interesting, like you know, that that kind of people stuff where you do have people doing the back channel, backbiting, undermining thing. It's like I've often struggled with wondering why why are people like that. And I'm wondering in your experience if you've ever come up with a good answer to that question of why what would drive somebody to be like that, to be undermining, to be corrosive, to be backbiting. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think some people have grown up in cultures where that has been accepted, and so they might have been taught that way. Uh, you know, perhaps they have never really seen what a great culture might look like, and therefore they don't understand their obligations um, in playing properly around all of this. Um, I've, I've had situations where we've had people that just can't deal with being wrong, and being right is more important than, to them than being part of the team and acknowledging being wrong and acknowledging making a, making a mistake is such a fundamental part of who they are and where they come from that, uh, that they just can't get across that. That can be particularly difficult. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's any kind of, you know, single reason as to why people uh, don't understand that. But I do like to sort of give people the benefit of the doubt and think that maybe they just haven't experienced what great culture is. And so it's always worth again, back to context before really pushing hard around context and explaining what all of this means. There's a, you know, a number of great books um, out there that, that deal with this in really wonderful ways. Um, you know, Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, obviously is a bit of a Bible for us folks in business, but um, one that I have uh, used numerous times over the years is by um, an author, Patrick Lencioni, called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Such um, a good book, a that one. Isn't that fantastic? Like when yeah, you first read it, you think, oh, this is a bit kitschy. You know, it's kind of told in fable-like yeah. uh, prose. And uh, you think, what could I possibly learn from this? But it's, it's been one of the most powerful books I've ever read personally. And every leadership group that I've worked with in the last sort of 10 years or so, I've kind of driven them mad by giving them copies of that book um, as well. But, you know, it's, it's like interesting. Interesting, interesting message, you, you know. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting when you when you read it, uh, everybody has, you know, in their own mind, the context of who that particular character is in the book. Uh, as well. so that, that's always quite good fun. I love it. It's setting the tone. It's like, I'm just starting with you as your new leader. Here's a book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Okay, then. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing, I had met Patrick Lindsay only last year, very briefly. And, oh, uh, wow. I, I, you know, he's a wonderful man everything you would imagine, incredibly energetic and just full of ideas and, and sort of, you know, overflowing with with stuff. But um, I asked him, you know, about the title of the book because it is it's a slightly negative title, right? It, totally. you know, if you could do it again, would you address it in a more positive tone? And he's sort of been asked that question many of times. I think his broad answer was maybe. Um, <laughs> Which means none of your business and I like it just oh, really? fine. Yeah. And it sells books. <laughs> it's worked well, yeah. <laughs> And so, um, and I, I don't think I didn't answer the second part of your question. Which yeah. Is about what do you love about people? Like. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I really like being out in the business, um, talking to people. I, I think the role of the CEO um, and C-suite executives is increasingly about storytelling. You know, back to providing context for change and why we need to change and what the consequences of not changing potentially could be. 
creating that sort of vision and the picture of what the future might look like, I think is really one of the primary jobs of being a CEO. And I think you get a lot of energy from being out talking to people as well, people and clients and, you know, other stakeholders, shareholders in public company context. And so, uh, you know, listening to them, hearing their feedback, not all of it is feedback that you necessarily take on board, but um, it's great to have the opportunity to get different perspectives from people. Um, and I, I really enjoy that part of the job. I spend a lot of my time um, out of the office rather than uh, sort of trapped behind the desk responding to emails. <laughs> That's an effective use of your time, I'm sure. <laughs> so thinking about success, you know, you've been, you've had a lot, lot of obvious successes, you know, whether it's a business transformation or building results threefold and, and so on. How do you define success as a leader? Well, I think I've been very lucky um, to have worked in the places that I've worked in and worked with incredible teams over the years. Um, I think the thing that's changed for me probably in the last 10 years is that success, it's less about personal success now and it's more about the team um, or the business or in some respects the industry. You know, senior leadership roles, especially being a CEO, are a, a real privilege and you know, in truth, we're really just custodians of these businesses for a short period of time. So you always want to leave them better than what they were when you started. Um, and you can't do that without taking people with you. You know, no CEO or C-suite executive can be successful if their team's not successful. So I think you tend to increasingly, um, as you grow up, I suppose, inside these businesses, uh, tend to look more broadly and that the primary lens uh, becomes around people. Uh, you know, are we growing them? Are we helping them develop their careers and achieve their goals? Are we building the leaders of tomorrow? Is this a place that they want to work that they're proud of? I, I, you know, I love the, uh, your interview recently with Josh Levine where he said, do they look forward to Monday as much as they look forward to Friday? I mean, what a, what a wonderful question that is. You oh, know, it is. Sunday, Sunday night test. I love it, yeah. I don't think that should be on every sort of employee engagement survey. <laughs> Shouldn't it? This is brilliant. It's so simple and just cuts through and, you know, do you look forward to Monday mornings or do you dread them? Yeah, that's right. I love that philosophy that I'm not sure where you started, but definitely where you're sitting now about being people first. And that's certainly a leadership philosophy that I aspire to and I educate my leaders with around that because I think all the results that you want in your business come from that lens of putting people first and people not just within the business but within the community and broader sector, as you say. And does that come with maturity? I think it does, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, th I really think it does. So from a leadership maturity point of view, in our early stages of our careers, we're often focused on individual achievement, proving that we're worth our medal, uh, developing our own skills and kicking our own goals. And then we've done that for a while. We work out it's better in a group. And my role is to help the group do that. And it's a very huge shift in terms of our leadership practice at that stage. And some people handle that transition well and others really struggle for a long time with it. Uh, so when you're working with leaders and you're looking to elevate them, what are some key things you work with them on? Is it around storytelling? Is it around capacity building? Is it around leadership philosophy? What is it that you might start with? Um, I think I start with trying to get to know the whole person a bit. We spend a lot of time uh, in the office um, or at work, um, even out of the office. And, and I think it's really helpful to understand as much as willing, people are willing to share, and, and everybody's a bit different about this as well. Um, I am a big believer in using 
sort of management offsite planning sessions. Uh, Yay! Sort of, I love those. Yeah, they're great <laughs> for getting inside each other's heads, and you, you know. Um, and so I think that is important, and I think again back to the fantastic work that Brene Brown's been doing around vulnerability, and uh, you know Patrick Lencio. Antonioni talks about the sort of base of the pyramid around accountability and trust and so on. Those things I think are, are really important. And so that's a starting point for me is, you know, what, what, what does this look like? What do you want to get out of this? How, how are you the whole person and what's happening in your life that you could share with me that would help me better understand how to work with you and, and vice versa. Um, and people can be quite private at times around that, but there's, well-facilitated meetings, um, you know, by people who are experts in this space can help reveal all sorts of things that make the team far much, you know, much stronger um, than they would be without that uh, sort of insight and knowledge of each other. So I, I, I kind of start there. I think, you know, there's all oh, this thunder in the background there. Wow, uh, that is a hu- that's huge. <laughs> it is, yes, it, and it's looking very dark here as well at present. Um, hopefully it'll be a tropical storm that'll come and go. Um, and so I, I think that that is a, a really sort of important part of the, the forming of, of new teams, uh, getting to know each other um, in that broader context. I go, sorry, lost my train of thought there. The thunder did that. I know me. that is so loud. <laughs> that thunder's like, ah, I love thunderstorms. Um, so thank you for sharing that. So about in terms of how to how to get started with developing an executive and and being really engrossed in who they are as a person and what's important to them and getting to know them, building trust that way. I think that's sort of the building block for everything, whether it's a high-performing team or high-performing executive or high-performing organization. High-performing business, I think that's right. Mm. I think the word I was sort of struggling to find a bit before, which gets used a lot these days, but I think it's quite powerful, is authenticity. You know, or an Australian context, sort of cut through the bullshit, really, um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, be be real about things. And I think that that word surfaces in a number of ways. It's also about leadership teams, but it's also about leadership teams and their credibility with the business and how they communicate with people and how they respond to feedback and what they do with that feedback and so on as well. I think authenticity is at the heart of all of that. Oh, I agree. That's beautiful. And I love the fact that you're a storyteller as well. Uh, and book recommendation from me to you on that is with Gabrielle Dolan's uh, Real Conversations, Real Communication, uh, Real Communication, yep. I think might be. I'll put a note to that in the show notes and send you a link as well. She's awesome. And I think you'll really enjoy that. Craig, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your wisdom and uh, your stories of transformation and contribution and business and people stuff. I really value your experience. And it's really wonderful to see a leader living the ethos of being a transformational leader that's people-based. And uh, I really enjoyed all your stories. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Zoe. It's been a great privilege to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Wow, so much to take away from that interview. Craig was a complete legend. I love his lived experience. It's built on the hard yards for sure. He said after the interview that I could have asked him about massive failures because there's those to share as well. But he's had so much enormous success. I think it's also important to learn from success. And this is what I took away from the interview. One, about getting back to basics. Get the people right, get the culture right, and get your strategic focus. It's pretty essential when you're walking into an organization where you want to elevate the performance there. The second thing was when you're going through a big change management process and dealing with a big bowl of spaghetti, as you described it, get really clear on your three focus areas, which are focus, 
simplify and grow. I love that. I thought that was really good analysis and just so helpful just to when you get just such a clarity like that. And the third one is that it's all about people and getting to know the whole person first is really the key leadership strategy and it grows outwards from there. So if you loved this interview as much as I did, feel free to rate it on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to your podcast and write us a review. That would be amazing. If not, forward it to a friend or a colleague you think could benefit from the wisdom of Craig and the awesome content that we keep bringing to you weekly. So thanks so much for listening. Have a great week.